0: The Baptist. Verse 19, and this is the witness of John. And so the writer of this gospel is going to take four episodes from four consecutive days in the life of John to pull together the witness, the testimony of John the Baptist to the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. The first day, we saw a delegation from the Pharisees in Jerusalem come out to investigate John the Baptist's claims to see if he was indeed the Messiah. He said he was not, and that he was the one who announced and prepared the way, the voice crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. The second day, which was a Friday of that particular week, we saw that Jesus came walking up as he returned from his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, his three tests. Uh, temptations in the wilderness. And John announced, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there we focused on the doctrine of judgment, salvation. That throughout history, from the time that Adam sinned, before there can be salvation, there must be judgment of sin. Remember, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. And so there must be condemnation and judgment before salvation in the garden that took place in a picture as God the Father provided for the needs or as God the Son as a matter of fact there provided for the needs of the pre-incarnate Son of God provided for the needs of Adam and Eve he sacrificed showed taught them about sacrifice sacrificed the animals and then skinned them and provided the animal skins to cover Adam and Eve that was a portrayal of what would eventually take place by the Lamb of God on the cross. So, verse 29, in the second day we learned about judgment, salvation, and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then we came to the third day. And on the third day we learned something more about the humility of John, recognizing that his role was as the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. When he saw Jesus, he's standing there on the Sabbath day with two of his disciples, And John and Andrew and he says he sees Jesus coming and he says look the Lamb of God and his point is that it is time for you to leave me you two who are so serious about learning about the Messiah investigating the scriptures and looking for the Messiah that is the Messiah it's now time for my ministry to diminish and for his to increase you need to quit being my disciples or my students and you need to follow him That was the implication, and when the two disciples heard that, they picked up and they left and immediately followed Jesus. And Jesus asked them the all-important question, what do you seek? Not who do you seek, but what do you seek? To focus their attention as it should focus our attention on what are the priorities of our life. Are they spiritual or are they physical? Is learning doctrine and growing spiritually the highest priority in our life? Fulfilling our role as ambassadors and as priests in our spiritual life? Or do we have other conflicting agendas? And now we come to the fourth day. This is Sunday of that particular week. And we begin in verse 43. One thing I want to notice or want to highlight again is that in this passage in the previous day, we learned something about evangelism. That as soon as they, these two disciples, John and Andrew, saw who Jesus was and understood who he was, they followed him and then they left for a brief while to find their brothers. Andrew found his brother Peter. John went to find his brother James. Peter was the first to return with his brother. And what we learned there is that evangelism... Because of what they said in terms of pointing to the Messiah, that evangelism was not some emotional, sentimental, need oriented uh, practice that is the way evangelism is usually presented today, but it was uh, based on the facts of Scripture. That doesn't mean it was cold and intellectual and divorced from human experience, because what you see here is rich, warm reality. They're excited. ...about what they have found. They have been looking for the Messiah. They have been studying the scriptures to find the Messiah, to find truth. And now that they find him, they're excited and they run to find others to tell them as well. So we see that emotion is present, but emotion is not the focus. Emotion is not the issue. And what we must learn is that emotion is subjective. It is never, uh, uh, never objective... And it's going to vary from person to person, just as personality varies from person to person. And each person is going to respond and react a little differently at the point of salvation, depending on their personality, depending on the circumstances, depending on the background. And one of the problems we see in Christianity is everybody seems to want to put everybody else in a mold. That I went through this experience when I was saved. uh, I felt like this. I acted like this. And you should, too. If you don't feel like I did, if you're not excited like I was, if you don't uh, do this or do that or act, behave in this manner, then maybe you weren't truly saved. And so we have people always wanting to put other people in a box and make everybody fa- uh, follow the same type of pattern. But as we see here, each of the disciples has vastly different personalities. They, they, God uses all kinds of people and people have different experiences and different emotions and different things happen at the time of salvation some people are ecstatic some people aren't some people are very quiet and reserved other people are very overt and each one is going to respond in their own way and never try to put people in some kind of mold or confuse personality issues with doctrinal issues so we come to the fourth day and here we are going to see some very unusual things take place. A very interesting conversation that reveals both the, the uh, sense of humor of our Lord and of Nathanael. We will meet Nathanael and Jesus will reveal through his sense of humor his deity to Nathanael. So by our um, calculation, this is on Sunday. It's uh three days before the wedding at Cana that begins in chapter 2. And as the travel restrictions after the Sabbath are lifted, Jesus prepares to travel to uh, Cana. Reading in verse 43, the next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee and he found, excuse me, he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. As I said, the previous day was the Uh, Sabbath day, all travel restriction, all travel was restricted according to Pharisaical law. And so during that time, very little happened. But once the travel restrictions are lifted, Jesus has a plan and a purpose. This is indicated by the verb. It is the aorist active indicative of thello, which means, which shows will and desire and purpose. It means to want to do something, to will to do something. It indicates that there is planning and purpose behind Jesus' actions. This is not some haphazard, accidental, or impulsive act. He doesn't wake up that morning and say, Oh, I think I'm going to go find Philip. He has a plan for his ministry. He knows who he wants to include among his disciples. He knows why he wants them. And he is carrying out that plan. So he goes to seek out Philip. Another thing to notice is that up to now... His disciples have been men who have come to follow Him. Andrew and John saw Jesus and went to follow Him. Uh, Peter was brought to Jesus. James was brought to Jesus. But Philip is the first one that Jesus goes out specifically and finds and says, Follow Me. One of the things underlying this chapter is, by the Apostle John is his emphasis on the different kinds of people who follow Jesus. For example, John the Baptist is a loner. He's a wilderness man. He's sort of like Jeremiah Johnson. He doesn't bathe much probably. He wears old uh, old camel uh, skins on his body. He eats a rather restricted diet of whatever he finds out in the wilderness, locusts and honey primarily. And he doesn't uh, hobnob with the Uh, rich and famous in Jerusalem with the religious leaders even though he has a tremendous religious pedigree through both his father and mother he is an Aaronic priesthood, a descendant of Aaron and has a right to serve in the temple as a Levitical priest but instead he has a different mission he is a loner, he doesn't run around with people he would be like the person who comes to church, comes in, sits down, listens to Bible class and leaves and doesn't get to know people, uh, wants to maintain their privacy, wants to keep quiet. And we have to respect that about people. Just because they don't want to go downstairs and have fellowship or hobnob with other people does not mean that they're not spiritual. So that's one type of person. So we have to respect that and let them be who they are, not try to force them into some kind of mold. John the Apostle is a different type altogether. He is a thinker. As I read through the Gospel, I think he is a very deep thinker, someone who has thought and meditated for years on what transpired at this time. So he is probably a little more quiet, a little more thoughtful. He is someone who is concerned very much with relationships. You see that in the way he talks about Jesus and the way he portrays our Lord in terms of his relationships Peter is quite different again he's the outgoing type he is often the one who uh, speaks before he thinks Uh, sometimes uh, we identify a little more with Peter than than we would like he's the natural leader the extrovert the one who is always uh, uh, wanting to gather everybody around and head off in a new course of action Andrew his brother is different again Andrew seems to be as extrovertish as Peter, but not as outspoken. Notice it is Andrew that, as soon as he realizes who the Lord is, he takes off to find Peter. We see other passages where Andrew is mentioned, and he seems to be the one who is very people-oriented. He is probably, and we know from from some tradition outside the Scriptures, that he was uh, more evangelistic. And he seems to be the kind of person who was always going out and trying to bring people in. Reaching people, the the person who was out trying to get everybody else involved in what was going on. And that's one type of person that is certainly needed and certainly uh, necessary in the local church. But not everybody is going to be like that. There are different personality types. And then Philip, well, without being uh, disparaging of Philip, Philip comes across as not being the... uh, most intelligent of the disciples. He seems to be a little slow, a little hesitant, unsure of himself. Uh, some people can identify with Philip because he really doesn't want to put himself out in the forefront. He, uh, he's not sure how to handle certain situations. For example, in John 12:21, 21. So, uh, he goes to uh, find out Andrew. Andrew, what do you think I ought to do about this problem? How do I solve this problem? And He wants to get the advice of other people before he... He uh, takes a step and makes, makes a decision. So Philip seems to be a little quieter, a little less sure of himself, a little less confident. And what we learn from this is that God chooses all kinds. He doesn't choose people because of their intelligence, because of their education, because of how bright they are, because of how confident they are, or outgoing they are. God has a plan for every single person. Every single believer at the point of salvation fits right into God's plan and into the body of Christ. So we're introduced to Philip and God specifically has found Philip who is not the most outgoing or the most famous, but Philip is the first one that Jesus goes to to say, follow me. So we gain a little confidence and assurance perhaps in that because we know at times that we are more like Philip than we would like to be. And so we are confident that Jesus has a role in place for us. Now in verse 44, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. So we're beginning to see that there is a relationship here prior to the coming of Jesus between many of these disciples. They knew each other. They were all buds. They had uh, fished together. They had been in business together. They had investigated the scriptures together. And they had been talking a lot between themselves about who the Messiah would be when He would come, and how would we know Him. So there is a spiritual interest and positive volition. Bethsaida is located on the map here. Uh, This is a map of Israel. Down here you have the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is located over here just to the west of the Dead Sea. Up in the north here is the Sea of Galilee. Running down from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea is the uh, Jordan River. And up here on the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee uh, is the location of Bethsaida. John the Baptist operated in this area here during this time. Jesus is going to take a couple of days to end up over here at Nazareth, uh, just across the valley. You can't see it on the map, but there, Nazareth is located here, just north of of Nazareth. There's a there's a valley, uh, a river runs through that valley, and on the other side is Cana. Of Galilee where the wedding will take place so Cana is just about three or four miles uh, north of Nazareth so Jesus in order for all these things to take place within a, the framework that we have here of two or three days uh, John the Baptist would have to be up in this area where Andrew and Peter uh, and John come to be with Jesus and then he heads to find Philip now we're not sure where Philip was we know he's from Bethsaida but he might have been closer And he had a background of friendship and knowledge with Andrew and Peter. And once Philip is brought in and he realizes who Jesus is as the Messiah, what does Philip do? We see the evangelist in action. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael. So as soon as he realizes who Jesus is and realizes that that there is salvation here, he goes to find Nathanael. Now, I don't normally do I'm not promoting myself. I remember when I was six years old, I came home from church one afternoon, and my parents sat me down and explained the gospel to me. It was on Mother's Day of 1959. I know that because it just happened to be the first day that Baraka Church uh, started in its new building at that time, which is its current facility and they explained the gospel to me that Jesus had died on the cross for my sins and that I could go to heaven when I died by simply believing in Christ as my Savior I just thought that was great the first thing I did was run out the door and I ran down the street to my best friend and told him the gospel and made sure he was saved and that's the picture that we have here is just the excitement the enthusiasm of realizing that they, they found the person they've been searching for they understand salvation and they're going to make sure that those they've been uh, involved with in these discussions of searching the Scripture for, for the Messiah also find Him. And so, Philip runs and he's excited and he comes up to Nathaniel. and he says, We have found Him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, I want you to notice what Philip did not say. Philip didn't say, We have found... Him, And I know it because He lives within my heart. Isn't that what the, the, the hymn says? Now that's true. There is a subjective experience that we have as believers when we trust Christ as our Savior. But that's not how we know He lives. You know how the, the, the hymn goes. He lives, He lives. You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. Well, that's wrong you ask me how I know He lives because the Bible tells me so. That's what uh, one, one famous theologian was asked to summarize what he learned from the Bible. And he says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And what does that do? It places the authority of our salvation where it belongs. Not in personal subjective experience or emotion or anything else. But in the objective, verifiable testimony of the Word of God. And what we see in Philip's communication to Daniel, I mean to Nathaniel, is, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. We have been searching the scriptures, according to Alfred Adersheim, who wrote a very famous work on the life of Christ who had been He himself had been trained to be a rabbi uh, before he became a believer. He says that some 450 passages in the Old Testament were interpreted by the rabbis at that time as being messianic. So these men are very familiar with what was being taught by the rabbis at that time and they had been searching these 456 verses in the Old Testament to find out all that they could about the promised Messiah. And Philip comes to him and says, point by point, we know that he meets these qualifications. How do we know that he's the Messiah? Because of the objective witness of the word of God, not because of any experience or feeling on our part. So there is an objective basis that is used here. And he bases his witness completely upon the doctrine that he has in his own soul and he communicates that with with Nathaniel. So their conversation is doctrinally oriented. It's content oriented. It is not experience and emotion oriented. It's not subjective, but it's objective. The other thing I want you to note here is that when it gets past a certain point, Philip has to say something. He has to say, well, I don't know the answer. You come and investigate it for yourself." And every one of us goes through this in witnessing. We go to somebody and we say, Jesus, I'm going to go to heaven because Jesus is the Savior. This is what the Bible says. And then somebody says, well, what about the heathen? What about those who never heard? Well, you know, I really haven't thought about that. Well, but why don't you come to church with me because I know there's an intellectual answer to that. I know that that your questions have solid answers. I don't know them, but you come with me and we'll get those questions answered. And that's what happens right here. In verse 46, Nathanael's response when he hears of Jesus of Nazareth, he says, well, wait a minute, Micah 5.2 says that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Where did this Nazareth come from anyway? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, there's a little interplay here because Nathanael is um, probably from Cana, and Cana has a little town rivalry with Nazareth. So it's sort of like, well, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? Those are the guys across the, across the river there. And um, I don't see how anything good can come out of Nazareth. And Philip says, okay, come and see. You've got to investigate this for yourself. You want to know the Messiah. You've been investigating the Scriptures. If you want to be intellectually honest about this, then you come and investigate it on your own. You take some time to find out the answers to your questions. So Nathanael comes. And he comes to Jesus and in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and as Nathanael is approaching Jesus, Jesus says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Now, this is going to lose everything in translation. This is very humorous. Jesus is using a pun in order to get Nathanael's attention. To understand that, we have to look at the original language here a little bit. Jesus says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Well, the word here in the Greek is dolos, D-O-L-O-S which means deceit or treachery. So, if we retranslate it, we'll say, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no treachery. Now, what does this mean? I would bet that just about every one of you, if you've read this, have come to this verse and say, Well, you know, there's just something going on here I don't understand. So, I want you to hold your place here and turn with me in the Old Testament to Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 27 verse 35. Genesis twenty-seven, thirty-five. now this chapter is one of the more interesting chapters and tells one of the more interesting episodes that transpired in the Old Testament and it's the story of the blessing the passing on of the blessing of Jacob to his two sons now remember Jacob had twins Esau's the oldest and Isaac, I mean, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the youngest, Esau's the oldest. Now, Esau's the rugged outdoor type and Jacob is more mama's boy and he stays home and hangs around the kitchen and so Isaac, being the outdoors type, favored Esau. He liked the fact that Esau would go out hunting and would kill a deer and bring it home and cook that venison stew for him and he really enjoyed that and so... He calls Esau in at the beginning of the chapter and he says, My son, I want you to go out and I want you to hunt some game for me and come back and fix a, a good venison chili for me and we'll uh, have a meal and then I will pass on the, the family blessing to you. Well, Rebecca is listening at the door and Rebecca's favorite is, is Isaac. And she doesn't want Isaac to miss out on the blessing So she's going to work up a little scheme. So while Esau is getting ready to go hunting and he's putting on his hunting clothes and getting his bow and his arrow together and getting ready to go out on the hunt, she calls in Isaac and she says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fool your dad. You're going to go out and get a couple of kids from the flock and I'm going to prepare a dish just the way he likes it. I know just how your dad really likes his food. So I will fix his favorite dish and then you're going to put on an old... Uh, hairy skin, so when he feels you, because by this time uh, Isaac's pretty old and he can't see, he can't tell which son it is, so we're going to put this old uh, uh, skin over you so that when he reaches out to touch you, you'll feel hairy like Esau. uh, Because Jacob was smooth skin and Esau was rugged outdoorsman, had hairy arms, hairy chest, hairy back. And uh, so they're going to fool him so that uh, Jacob gets the blessing instead of Isaac. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Because uh, Jacob was, his name means chiseler, and he was a deceitful person. And if we come down, after all this took place, and, and Isaac passed the blessing on to Jacob, and then discovered the deception and the treachery, we find his statement in verse 35 to Esau. And he said, that is, Jacob said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away the blessing. Well, when the uh, Jews later on, when they were translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, and they translated this verse, they translated deceitfully by the word dalas. So, Jacob's background, the inherent character of Jacob, the chiseler, is that he is a deceiver, a treacherous one. He is dalas. Now, To get the other part of the background, turn over a chapter to chapter 28, verse 11. This is another episode in the life of Jacob. Jacob is traveling and he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head. How would you like that for a pillow? Truly camping out. Put it under his head and lay down in that place and he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. Very important to understand what's going to happen in John 1. He has the, This is the vision of Jacob's ladder. A ladder is a means of transportation between earth, the domain of mankind, and heaven, the residence of God. The ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. So here we see the background of Jacob's very famous uh, ladder, dream, uh, ladder dream. And the result of that is given in verse 13, where God reaffirms to Jacob the covenant that he has made with Abraham and Isaac. So it's a reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant, and that's covered in verses 13, 14, and 15. That's the second part of the puzzle. Now we'll get the third part. Turn over a few more chapters to Genesis chapter 32, verse 27. Another one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament with uh, Jacob. Jacob is once again out in the wilderness camping out. And he's left alone in verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Well, we later learn that this is not a man, this is the angel of the Lord. So Jacob is wrestling with God all night long in this major wrestling match. And when he, that is Jacob, saw that he had not prevailed against him, that is the angel of the Lord, or or, excuse me, that should be when he, that is the angel of the Lord, saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the angel strikes him on his in his hip, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then Jacob says, Let me go for the dawn is... Or then he, that is the angel of the Lord, says, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob holds on to him. He realizes now who this is. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And the angel said, Your your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have wrestled with God And with men and have prevailed so he gets a new name as a result of this and that new name is israel okay now we have the parts to the puzzle so let's see what happens here go back to john chapter one i know you're just dying to see how all of this is going to come back together Jesus sees Nathanael coming. And most of the time in the New Testament, the descendants of Abraham are called Jews. They are rarely called Israelites. But when Jesus looks at Nathanael, He says, Behold an Israelite. Jacob became Israel. A prince with God. A man who wrestled with God. This focuses on the regenerate nature of Jacob in terms of God's plan for his life. And so, Jesus, when he looks at Nathanael, says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. There is no longer any deceit. This is a true Israelite. One who has been regenerated and is not like that old chiseler, Jacob. Now, that's not the end of the story. Verse 48. Nathanael answered him and said, um, said to him, How do you know me? See, he doesn't question this analysis at all. He doesn't say, Well, where would you get that, Lord? How, how do you, what do you mean I'm, I'm without guile? He is the kind of guy, there's no deceit. Whatever Nathanael thinks, it's going to come right out with it. He's not going to beat around the bush. He's not going to try to make you feel good if it will make you feel bad. He's going to tell you just how it is. He's going to give you the truth. So he says, okay, that's who I am. I'll admit it. How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Well, this brings a little more interesting things to bear because one of the things we learn from the rabbis is that the place to meditate on Scripture is to get under the cool shade of a fig tree. So there's some some symbolism going on here that is very interesting. The Mishnah states that students of the Scripture would read under the fig tree in the shade. And the Passover is coming, which we discover at the end of chapter 2. This is just prior to the Passover. And one of the passages that the rabbis had their students read in preparation for the Passover was the Jacob's Dream passage in Genesis. Genesis. So what we're seeing here is the scenario. Nathanael is sitting under a fig tree as a rabbinical student preparing for the Passover by meditating on the Jacob's Dream passage. The Jacob's Dream passage focuses on the bridge that will develop between man on earth and God in heaven. And this is related to the Passover. It is a passage in its prophetic significance looking forward to the coming of the king, the Messiah, down the ladder to provide fellowship and communion between heaven and earth. So the implication here is that Nathanael is meditating on this passage in the life of his progenitor, Jacob. He understands the whole meaning of Jacob as the, as the deceiver with Dalas, and he understands the nature of regeneration and the shift from Jacob as the deceiver to Jacob, the one who wrestled with God, who became a prince with God. And so with all of this background, when Jesus says this, and He's using these word plays, it recalls all of this to mind, and so Nathanael just sits down and says, only God could know all of this and put it all together. Because in this very terse manner, using these allusions to Scripture, Jesus lets Nathanael know, that he knows everything there is to know about Nathaniel, and that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy that is given there in, um, in Genesis, the Jacob's Ladder dream. You see, Nathaniel had questions. He wanted to know who the Messiah was. He needed answers to his, his intellectual questions. He wasn't going to be satisfied simply because Philip came along and said, "...we found the Messiah." He wanted hard evidence. Today, there are very few places where we can take people to find hard evidence of the truth of Christianity. We live in an era when people rely more on emotion and excitement and going someplace so they can have their emotions stirred up and feel good than going someplace where they can learn the truth of Scripture and have their intellectual questions about life answered. Because we have divorced ourselves, divorced the spiritual life today, from the intellectual life. What has happened across the board is we no longer think that reason has anything to do with our relationship with God. And this is not new. This is something that has uh, been a problem with Christianity throughout the 20th century. And I ran across a quote from J. Gresham Machen. In his address to Princeton in 1912, Machen was a very famous defender of Orthodox Christianity around the turn of the century. In fact, he had, a, he had an incredible mind, knew, knew I think 10 or 12 different ancient languages, and wrote numerous books attacking the, um, or defending Christianity against the attack from liberal theology. And listen to what Machen said almost a century ago that strikes home today. He said our whole system of school and college education is so constituted as to keep religion and culture as far apart as possible, ignoring the question of the relationship between them. On five or six days of the week, we are engaged in the acquisition of knowledge, and from this activity, the study of religion was banished. We study natural science without considering its bearing or lack of bearing on theology or revelation. We study Greek without ever opening the New Testament. We study history, carefully avoiding the greatest of historical movements ushered in by the preaching of Jesus. In philosophy, the vital importance of the study of religion could not be entirely ignored, but was kept as far as possible in the background. On Sundays, on the other hand, we had religious instruction that called for little exercise of the intellect. Careful preparation for Sunday school lessons, as in the same sense that lessons in Latin or mathematics were studied was unknown. Religion seemed to be something that had only to do with the emotions and the will, leaving the intellect for secular studies. What wonder that after such training we begin to think that religion and culture as belonging to two entirely separate compartments of the soul and their union as involving the destruction of of both. To remedy the problem, he went on to say, a man can believe only what he holds to be true. You can't believe something if you think it's false. That's his point. A man can believe only what he holds to be true. We are Christians because we hold Christianity to be true. But other men hold Christianity to be false. Who is right? That question can be settled only by an examination and comparisons of uh, comparison." of the reasons adduced on both sides. It is true that one of the grounds for our belief is an inward experience we cannot share. The great experience begun by conviction of sin and conversion and continued by communion with God is an experience which other men do not possess and upon which we cannot therefore directly base an argument. But if our position is correct, we ought at least to be able to show the other man that his reasons are inconclusive and that involves careful study of both sides of the question. Furthermore, the field of Christianity is the world. The Christian cannot be satisfied as long as any human activity is opposed to Christianity or out of all connection with Christianity. Christianity must pervade not merely all nations, but all of human thought. The Christian, therefore, cannot be indifferent to any branch of earnest human endeavor. It must all be brought into some relation to the gospel. It must all be studied either in order to demonstrate it is false or else to make it useful in advancing the kingdom of God. Then he concludes, The missionary movement is the great religious movement of our day. Now it is true that men must be brought to Christ one by one. There are no labor-saving devices in evangelism. It is all His work. And yet it would be a great mistake to suppose that all men are equally well prepared to receive the gospel. It is true that the decisive thing is the regenerative power of God. That can overcome all lack of preparation, and the absence of that makes the best preparation useless. Yet it is a matter of fact God usually exerts that power in connection with certain prior conditions of the human mind. And it should be ours to create, so far as we can, with the help of God, those favorable conditions for the reception of the gospel. False ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. We may preach with all the fervor of the reformer, and yet succeed in only reaching a straggler here or there. We cannot permit the whole collective thought of the nation or the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, Prevent Christianity from being regarded as nothing more than a harmless delusion under these circumstances, what God desires us to do is to destroy those, these obstacles at its root. see that's our job as believers we're to tear according to second corinthians five we're to tear down fortresses that have been of uh, uh, intellectual thoughts that have been erected against the truth of the gospel, and that's what Philip is willing to do when Nathaniel says Well, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He says, come and see. If you're really interested in finding out the answers to your intellectual questions, then be willing to investigate it, to take the time and the effort. And that's what our response should be to people. Well, how do you know that's true? Well, come and see. If you really care, if you're really interested, then take up the challenge. Be willing to investigate it. There are a few books that you can recommend, books by Josh McDowell and some others that lay out the evidence for Christianity. But people, we should challenge the unbeliever to be willing to truly investigate Christianity. Now, when Nathaniel is confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And how did Jesus answer him in verse 50? Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, Jesus brings him right back to that passage of Scripture he's been meditating on. Brings him right back to Jacob's vision and showing that he is the Son of Man. He's the bridge between man and God. He is the only way to God. Later, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So, Jesus brings this together for Nathaniel. He uses the title, the Son of Man, which is a messianic title that comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 we see four beasts who represent four different human kingdoms which are represented in all of their beast-like qualities. And down through history, the kingdom of man, whatever its form, it is always represented as animal-like and beast-like because of the inherent destructive value of sin. But Jesus is portrayed in Daniel as the son of man, the last kingdom that comes, that is going to restore all of humanity and unite it, under the rule of the Son of Man, the Messiah, the future King. So when Jesus says this, he focuses, He's not just saying to, to uh, Nathanael that He's the King of Israel, but He's saying that He is the go-between, the mediator. For there is one God and one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. Now in the conclusion of John 1, I want you to notice how John organized the material of these four days. Nathanael, I think he did this on purpose. Nathaniel represents the Jewish remnant, the Jewish remnant that is without deceit, that is true Israel of Israel. In the next chapter coming, we see the wedding. The wedding feast is always used in scripture to portray the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom. Prior to Nathaniel, the day before you have Andrew and Peter witnessing. I mean Andrew and John witnessing to Peter and James. And that is a picture of the witnessing in the church age. And prior to that, you have John the Baptist, the Old Testament prophet, who is a picture of the role of the prophet in history. So how has John organized his material here? There is a symbolic or typological value to this. First of all, you have John the Baptist representing the Old Testament prophet. Then you have, on on the third day, the two witnesses who represent the church age, the witness of the church age in the angelic conflict. And then you have the remnant, Nathaniel representing true Israel, the remnant of Israel that survives during the seven years of the tribulation. And then the conclusion, the last event, is the wedding feast, which is the celebration of the Messiah coming to earth in his kingdom during the millennium. So there's a very interesting way in which John the Apostle has organized his material. What fascinates me is that the, the more we get into this, into John, the deeper it gets. In this chapter, John has given us 14 different titles of Jesus Christ. He begins in verse 1 by telling us that he is the Logos, the Word. He tells us that he is God. He tells us that He is the light of men in verse 4. In verse 9, He tells us that He is the begotten of the Father, the unique one of the Father. In verses 14 and 15, He says that He is the one greater than John the Baptist. He is greater than John the Baptist. In verse 18, the second person of the Trinity is called the only begotten God. The only begotten God, the unique God. One of a kind Son of God. In verse 23, he is identified as Yahweh, Jehovah. In verses 19 and 38, he is called the Lamb of God. Verse 18, to review the only begotten God. Verse 23, he is identified as Yahweh or Jehovah. Verse 19 and 38, the Lamb of God. In verse 33, he is called the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In verse 34, He is called the Son of God. In verse 38, He is called the Rabbi or Teacher. And then in verse 41, it begins to escalate. He is the Messiah. In verse 41, in verse 45, He is the One who fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. In verse 49, He is the King of Israel. Culminating in verse 51, He is the Son of Man. So John, in this one chapter of 51 verses, gives us an incredible amount of detail about our Lord and Savior in introducing His public ministry. So next Sunday we'll come back and look at the wedding feast in Cana in John chapter 2. With our heads bowed and our Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to look at Your Word and, and to dig out from it all of these important truths and doctrines to see exactly how You have revealed Your Son to us as the One who fulfills all of the Old Testament prophets. That this is not something that happened by chance or by accident. That there wasn't some man named Jesus who came from Nazareth who just happened to be a good teacher. But He was a man who in His uh, life on the earth fulfilled hundreds of different Old Testament prophecies. The chances of any two or three of them coming together in one person are almost astronomical, but for hundreds of them to come together in one person could only be a direct result of your planning and your purpose. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is without hope or without eternal life, that they would take the opportunity right now to do as Nathaniel did and as James and John, Andrew and Peter did, That is, that they have been confronted with the claims of Jesus Christ to be the unique person of the universe who came to earth as the Lamb of God to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And that salvation is by believing in Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That right now, in the privacy of their soul, they would say to you, God the Father, I receive the gift, the free gift of Jesus Christ as my Savior and accept Him and his substitutionary death in my behalf. That's all that's necessary. Simply faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand all of these things, to remember them, to store them in our souls, that throughout the week we may reflect upon them, that we may marvel at how great and deep your word is, and how intricate all the details are, and how they all come together in such perfect and marvelous harmony. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.